0: Two places in your Bible this morning, Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah 53, and as soon as you find your place there, the book of Mark chapter 15, Mark 15, we'll read from two passages, and I'll give you a moment to find it. As soon as you find it, look up this way, and I'll know everybody's about there, and we'll stand together, and we'll read God's Word, okay? Isaiah 53, and Mark Two places in God's Word. Now, I'm preaching through the book of Mark. You know that if you uh, attend here regularly, but I'm fast-forwarding today up to chapter 15. We're in chapter 6, and so we're going ahead because of the special occasion that we have today, Palm Sunday, and so I'd like to skip ahead and do the crucifixion story from the book of Mark. Okay, now, would you stand with me in respect and reverence to God's Word, Isaiah 53. Now, look up here for just a moment. I want you to know what you're reading. Isaiah 53 is the greatest chapter, perhaps, in the Old Testament, foreshadowing the, uh, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death. If you think about that, this was written over 700 years before Christ came to the earth. And yet we find here a description of his suffering for us. Now, Isaiah 53, we're going to read just a few verses. Beginning in verse 4, I'll read, you follow with me in your Bible. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken "'Smitten of God and afflicted. "'But he was wounded for our transgressions. "'He was bruised for our iniquities. "'The chastisement or punishment of our peace was upon him. "'And with his stripes we are healed. "'All we like sheep have gone astray. "'We have turned everyone to his own way.' And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, go with me, please, to Mark chapter 15. And I'm going to read a passage of Scripture, a paragraph, if you will, that describes the crucifixion. Remember, the crucifixion was described in Matthew, in Luke, and John as well. Mark has the briefest account because it's the shortest book, of course. We began in verse 15 and so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus. And when he had scourged him to be crucified, and the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band, and they clothed him with purple, and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed, and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, and put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. And they brought him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on the right hand and the other on the left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And Lord, today, touch our hearts as we revisit the cross, the central message of our faith, As I described just a week or two ago But Lord may we see what a profound event this was And we pray in Jesus name, Amen Thank you and you may be seated It is said indeed that in America This week has turned into a vacation week Largely across the entire country Because this is known and has been observed for centuries as what we call Holy Week or Passion Week, the week of suffering, to state that literally. And what it means is that we mark today the beginning of a week in which the most momentous events of all of history occurred, the time of the suffering, the Passion Of the Lord Jesus Christ There's a lot of material in the New Testament About his death More than if I just read the verses I would not have the time In my time allotted today More space is given by the gospel writers To the crucifixion of Christ Than to any other event in his life And thus it should be And so I've tried to take those events Because for For the average person, uh, layman, reading the Bible, it becomes a blur of uh, events. So I've tried to simplify it and put it on a timeline, if you will. And I'm going to skip between the books of the Bible. Don't try to follow me. You You will not have time. But I want you to go with me very briefly through the sequence of events that occurred in the crucifixion drama. First of all, you know Christ was arrested in the garden And after his arrest and the betrayal by by Judas, he was carried to the house of the high priest. His name was Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest. There, of course, as you heard Wednesday night with Judge Anderson, he was tried according to Jewish law by the Talmud, if you will. The whole plot against him by Caiaphas was one of producing false witnesses. But it's interesting in your Bible, in Mark chapter 14, and if you'll slip back to verse forty or 56, there were many false witnesses against him, but their witness did not agree. Even though they had conspired to uh, bring these false witnesses forward, there were inconsistencies in their stories, and so their testimony was null and void. But in verse uh, 62, you notice that the high priest says to Jesus clearly, He stood up and he said, you're not answering me. He said, I want to know one thing. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Verse 61, chapter 14. And Jesus said simply, I am. I am the Christ, the son of God. Now to the Jewish mind, this was blasphemy. And when Jesus said, I am, he used the phrase that was the name of God essentially to a Jew. And so the charge against him at that point became blasphemy. He has made himself equal with God, of course, which he was. But Caiaphas could do nothing further, so they beat him. They spit in his face. They ridiculed and mocked him. And then they sent him to Pilate, chapter 15 and verses 1 through 5. And before Pilate, Pilate interrogated him there, began to ask him questions, but Pilate turned him loose after a few moments. It was obvious to him that this was an innocent man. In John chapter 18 and verse 38, Pilate said to the crowd gathered there, I find no fault in this man. This is an innocent man. I don't know why you have him here. And so Pilate perceived that Jesus was no threat to Rome, which he would have been primarily concerned about as the governor He didn't want an insurrection against the Romans And so he turned him loose I find no fault in him But he just sort of passed the buck He sent the Lord Jesus to Herod Herod was a Jewish king Or or, uh, uh, ruled over Judea He ruled under the authority of the Romans He was sort of a puppet king if you will And when he Began to talk to Jesus. He was curious. He was envious of the popularity that Jesus had. We find that out in other passages. He seems to have even feared him. And so he talked to him for a few moments. And Jesus refused to answer him. Jesus never said one single word to Herod. He treated him as if he did not exist. Because in reality, he was unimportant to the whole occasion. He was just part of being... Uh, passed off And so Jesus never said a word to Pilate After a few moments I guess he tired of this So he mocked Jesus Christ He ridiculed him He had some of his uh, assistants Put a what the Bible says is a gorgeous robe upon him And sent him back to Pilate He said I have no, I have no basis on which I can try him either So he comes before Pilate for a second time. You find that in the book of John chapter 18. This is where Pilate says to him, Are you really a king? Because Pilate was concerned that there not be an insurrection and a rebellion. And so he said, Are you a king? Are you getting ready to lead a, a revolt against me? And Jesus never said anything to him for a long time. Finally said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said this to him. I have come to bear witness of the truth. I have come to bear witness of the truth. I'm the king of truth, if you will. When Pilate asked him, are you a king? I'm the king of truth. Well, Pilate continued to interrogate him, finally turned away from him. You can imagine sort of with a smirk, and he said, what is truth? And he walked away. But before he did, twice he went before the crowd. Before he left Jesus, twice he went before the crowd and said, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. This is an innocent man. That's the third time now that Pilate said it. You go to John chapter 18 and then in chapter 19 and 4 and 6, you see him do it again. Three times he said, this is an innocent man. But he didn't care about human life. So he had, he had the Lord Jesus Christ scourged, which killed many people. The cruelty of it is uh, unbelievable. And after Christ was scourged, he turned him over to his own soldiers. They carried him away, and they crucified him. Notice the timeline of the crucifixion, because this is such an important event. I want you to never question it. I want you to really be able to think it through logically, clearly, scripturally. In verse 25 of Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15, verse 25, it says that um, it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Now, the Jews kept their time, of course, you know, from 6 o'clock a.m. and 6 o'clock p.m., where we keep it from 12, they kept it from 6. 6. And so the third hour would be 9 o'clock in the morning when Jesus was crucified. And then if you'll go down to verse 33, at the sixth hour, which would be high noon, there was darkness over the high, whole land until the ninth hour, there'd be 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And then at 3 p.m., according to verse number 34, then the Lord Jesus Christ Cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only time he ever called God the Father God. Always before he called him Father. But now he calls him God because he's there being judged by him. He cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in verse number 37, he cries with a loud voice and gave up the ghost, meaning he died. He dismissed his spirit, as you know. And then in verses Uh, In verse 42, they began the preparation. Now, when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath and a Passover that that next day. So from 3 to 6 in the afternoon after Jesus died, they had to prepare the body, take him down. That's when they anointed his body, wrapped it up, and put him in the tomb. They had to get him buried by 6 p.m., because after all these good religious people Had to go and observe the Passover After they killed the Son of God So uh, that's what they did from three to six And then they went to their to their homes In verse number 39 I think one of the most powerful verses in the Bible When the centurion Who was in charge of the crucifixion A Roman Stood over against him or near him He saw that he so cried out And he gave up the ghost And this Roman Secular soldier said, truly, surely, this man was the Son of God. The soldier said it for all of us today, didn't he? This was the Son of God. There's an old song. I learned it when I was a boy. I can't remember ever not having sung it at church. At the cross, at the cross, you've all sung it, you know it. Have you ever thought about that phrase, though, that says, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light? My friend, until you go to the cross, you haven't seen the light. There's a lot you don't understand until you spend some time at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the most important and momentous occurrence in all of human history. It was there I received my sight. I want to tell you what I see at the cross this morning, the rest of the time. What I see at the cross. Number one, I see the seriousness of sin. At the cross, you get an insight into just how serious this matter of sin is. And I want you to visit the cross with me because I want you to see how serious sin is I've used this illustration a number of times Because reading about it has had such a profound impact on me And so I share that with you Dr. Carl Meninger founded the famous Meninger Clinic In Topeka, Kansas Dr. Menninger's name is almost Uh, Synonymous with psychiatry In our country During the period of time he lived He was the absolute Most recognized Well known psychiatrist I'm sure you could talk To Dr. Al Harley back there And he could tell you a lot About Carl Menninger Because he was renowned In his field And in 1973 Dr. Menninger wrote a book Whatever happened to sin Now Menninger was not An out and out Christian That I know about He was not Making a case spiritually He was making a case about the human condition He was making a case about the practice of psychiatry In the modern western world Forty years ago And basically here's what he said The world would like to get rid of the whole idea of sin Let me say it again I don't want you to miss it Dr. Menninger said in America and in the West today, we're trying to get rid of this idea of sin. And the reason he said that was he said because sin has a moral connotation. And so whatever happened to sin because we're not talking about it, it's not mentioned from the pulpits near enough, he said. Strange words from a psychiatrist. It's not mentioned in society enough. In fact, he talks a lot in his book about how we have relabeled sin in order to minimize and trivialize it even. And so we call sin crime. And if it's a crime, then it's not a moral issue, it's a legal issue. And there's no solution, though. He says people can't get rid of their guilt through a legal procedure. And he said if sin is a crime... There's no basis for forgiveness. You just go serve your sentence and you still have that guilt hanging over you, which is, he said, unhealthy for your emotions and your mental state. And then he gave another illustration. He said, We call sin disease. And if it's a disease, then it doesn't require forgiveness, it requires treatment or therapy if it in fact is a sickness. And again, he said, There's no solution for the guilt. Do you notice in the crucifixion story, here Pilate is dealing with Jesus Christ. Is it not most interesting that the only thing we see Pilate do during that procedure is order a basin of water and start washing his hands? What was it that made his hands dirty as he stood on that platform, that dice, looking over that crowd with Jesus Christ beside him? I'll tell you where the dirt was. It was up here, it wasn't on his hands And it was a symbolic attempt, if you will To get forgiveness and get rid of the guilt That was plaguing his soul at that time Dr. Menninger said, we relabel sin crime And then we want a legal solution We relabel it disease And it requires therapy or treatment Or he said, we just blame all of society I'm old enough to remember the day that President Kennedy was killed in Dallas. And the news media, even back that far, began to blame the citizens of Dallas. They said, everybody in Dallas is guilty of this at one point. No, no. One man pulled the trigger on that gun. Not everybody in Dallas, but an attempt to a general type of blame for sin and for evil. Recently, Alex Rodriguez, the most highly paid Major League Baseball player, was found guilty. And there's no question about his guilt. I mean, they did the test on him chemically. And they know he was using a steroid, which was illegal according to the rules and the contract that he signed to play baseball by. And so he even went as far as going to court, and then it was tossed out. And what was his argument? I had pressure on me. There is so much pressure on me because I'm Alex Rodriguez that I succumbed to the pressure and I went out and used the steroids. Somebody else's fault. It's a a general sin. It's society. It's culture. The devil made me do it or any number of excuses, but always this rationalization that I'm not personally responsible for my sin. Menninger said, In his book, What Happened to Sin, interesting from the number one psychiatrist in America at that time, we need to bring sin back, he said. We need to quit relabeling sin crime or uh, disease or the fault of society. We need to bring sin back, and he chatted the preachers. He said, you preachers are the first in line to be blamed. You need to preach against sin from your pulpits. If you'll bring back a consciousness of sin Then you will put a major moral inhibitor Into the minds of people And we've lost that he said Boy have we lost it As I did a little research A week or two ago for this message Listen to what I found The latest edition of the Oxford Junior Dictionary for Children In it the editors of it said Crucial words to describe traditional topics have been stripped in favor of more modern terms. Now, I didn't put it up here on the slide, but there was a little lady, an Irish homeschool mother in Southern Ireland, homeschooling her little kids, and she bought that dictionary for them. And she began to discover, because she had the previous editions of it, and she said, I began to notice that dating back to the 70s, there was an increasing and systematic purging of words related to Christianity. Among the entries that have vanished from the new book, the terms, uh, the, the terms that have vanished are disciple, saint, abbey, bishop, altar, chapel, christen, monk, and Most importantly, sin. And you can look in the Oxford Junior Dictionary for Children. You will not find the word sin. Menninger was right. Whatever happened to sin? We don't want to deal with it because it has that moral connotation to it. In the Bible... Sin is not a disease, ladies and gentlemen And sin is not a crime Though it may be included in both categories But sin is a moral issue Sin is evil Sin, God says, deserves punishment The only thing we can know about God's character Aside from his power and his wisdom Which we see in nature The only thing we can systematically, factually know about God is what the Bible tells us. Your Bible that you hold here is God's law, and God's law reflects his holy character. Let me say it again. Your Bible is a reflection of the holy character of Almighty God. You want to know what God's character is like? You'll find it right here. This is God's character in, in words. And God's law that reflects his righteous character says this. 1 John 3 and 4 says that sin is lawlessness. Sin is the transgression of the laws, the way 1 John 3 and 4 says it, meaning lawlessness. Oh, we've gotten beyond that in our modern sophisticated society, haven't we? No, I don't think we have. Did you read the paper the other night or did you see on the news what happened after the Yukon kentucky ball game? For the sheer joy of just practicing lawlessness, thousands of young people go out and get roaring drunk and throw their beer cans and tear down signs and turn over cars and start fires. A spirit of lawlessness. That's what sin is. Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 7. Sin is rebellion, meaning defiance. Of God's laws Defiance of God's laws And in Romans chapter 3 And verse number 23 Sin is missing the mark Missing the mark The idea again of the guy Taking his gun or or the bow and arrow And pulling the string And shooting at a bullseye And missing it Going wide of the target And God's target is his holy law And all have sinned and come short, all of us have missed God's target, defied the Lord, broken his laws. Isaiah 53 and verse 6 that we read just a moment ago. I don't know if you still have your finger there, but in chapter 53 and verse number 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, now listen to this, everyone to his own way. Sin is selfishness. Sin is turning from God to our own way. So there's four characteristics of sin clearly delineated in the Scripture. Sin is lawlessness. What is sin? It's rebellion. It's missing the standard, coming short of the mark. It's selfishness. It's living for self. Somebody has pointed out the middle letter of sin is I, big I. Now, Menninger in his book made this point that sin implies human responsibility. That nobody is predetermined to sin. Flip Wilson, the comedian many years ago, made his fortune on the devil made me do it. But the devil really doesn't make us do it. We choose to do it. We choose to do it. it. I'm not predetermined genetically to sin. No, Where would you, there's no evidence of that anywhere. I don't have something in my body chemistry that requires me to sin. No, all of those are human rationalizations and attempt to avoid moral responsibility. And so now let me come full circle. As I stand at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ He was wounded for our transgressions He was bruised for our iniquities The chastisement of our peace was upon Him And the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all And I stand at the foot of the cross And I see how serious sin really is And the world may trivialize it, and society today may minimize it, and we may may relabel it and call it something else. But I tell you that sin is so evil, it reached into the depths of heaven and ripped, if you will, the Son of God off of his throne because the only way he could pay for sin was to come and die on the cross for us. And I stand at the cross and I see the seriousness of my sin. I have watched a change culturally, sociologically in my day as a pastor from a time when people sometimes even felt an inordinate and overwhelming sense of guilt But we've gone now, it seems to me, to a place where there's not much guilt at all, not much fear of God, and certainly not much seriousness when it comes to sin. In fact, I'm labeling myself right now because somebody's going to say, that old fundy. But if it's because of this, I'll bear that label gladly, my friend, because it was sin that required that Jesus go to the cross today. Pretty serious, don't you think? If there had been any other way, don't you think he would have taken it? The only way that sin could be properly dealt with was through the life and the blood, the shed blood of Jesus. Secondly, I see something else. I see the holy justice of God. Every one of us has read the paper, watched the news, looked around at events in our own personal lives. And we've said, is there any justice? Is there any? You know, justice is pictured as this woman and a blindfold is over her eyes because she's supposed to be blind and she has a scale and she's balancing it. Justice worth uh, against evil and so on. And we say, will that ever happen? Will there ever be a time in history when the scales of justice will be, in fact, balanced? Will evil ever be repaid? Is there any justice really in the world we live in? I know this, that in our busy world, if we would just stop and think about that word holy, The character of God is holy. His justice is holy. And I know this, that a holy God cannot permit evil to forever go unpunished and still remain holy himself. If God at some point doesn't balance the scales of justice, he's not a holy God. And I know this. Standing at the foot of the cross, I can see the holy justice of God. Because on the, on the cross, God inhabited the body of a man, Jesus Christ. And he bore the sins of the whole world. We used to use a program here called Evangelism Explosion, a wonderful evangelistic presentation. And we would turn to uh, the book of Isaiah. And we would hold out our hand and we would say, let this hand represent me or you or the person we were talking to. And we'd say, let's let my pen represent the sins of a lifetime. Here the pen represents every sin sin I ever committed, word, thought, or deed. And here I am with my sins upon me. And here Jesus Christ came to the earth and he hung on the cross. And then we would illustrate it so people could see a simple proposition here. We would say, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we would graphically move the pen that represented sin over, and we would put it on Jesus. And then we would ask the person to whom we were talking, now, where are your sins now? And they would say, well, they're on, on Jesus. And when were they put on Jesus? When he was on the cross. And our sins, our iniquities, all of them, past, present, and future, were laid upon Jesus, and he bore our sins. How could one man, have you ever thought about how could one man in six hours take all of the sins of all of humanity for all of time and pay for them? How could one man pay for the world's sins? Now, I wrote it out because I want you to see it. And if later you want it, I'll even arrange for you to get it and put it in your Bible because I think this is one of the most important concepts for a Christian to have. Jesus, being infinite, suffered for a finite. Of course, finite means limited. Infinite means unlimited. Jesus, being infinite, unlimited, suffered for a finite or limited time on the cross, six hours, what you and I, being infinite, Limited, finite, would be required to suffer for an infinite period of time in hell forever. Think about that. Jesus, being infinite, suffered for a finite time what you and I would be required to pay over an infinite eternity for ourselves. And Jesus, there, the sins of the world and for all eternity. Adrian Rogers said they were compressed and distilled upon Jesus as he hung there upon the cross, and he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why did he do that? Listen, Jesus died. Now, don't fail to get this. Jesus died to appease the wrath of God in order that justice could be satisfied, and God could then be free to forgive us. That's a strange word upon our ears today, that Jesus had to appease the wrath of God. That's what I'm saying. God, as a holy God, hated sin. I've told you what God thought of sin and the seriousness of it. And Jesus Christ came and he stood between a holy God and a sinful man and he bore the wrath as the substitute for my sins. Now, that's why I love him today. That's why I want to be loyal to him. That's why I don't find it hard to serve him. That's why it's easy for me to give him a tithe. And I gave him a tithe when I was starting the church and didn't have much to tithe. But it wasn't hard because when I think About him hanging on the cross There's nothing that he could ask for That would not be easy After looking at the cross Isaiah 53 and 6 says this He was smitten Of God Smitten of God? Yeah, I thought the Romans killed him Well they did, they had their pardon They physically were manning the hammers But God was behind his death to pay, to settle the books, to balance the scales of justice. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. If I said to you, who killed Jesus? Somebody would say, well, it was the Jews. Somebody else would say it's the Romans. Somebody else would say something else. Do you know what the Bible says? Yes, true on all points, but one more. i tell you who required the life of Jesus, almighty God. It pleased the Lord to bruise him in order that the scales of divine justice would be balanced and sin would be paid for. And the last thing I see at the cross, I see the most noble act of love in human history, the most noble act of love in all of human history, Tell me where in history there's anything close to the Son of God coming from heaven, clothed in flesh, entering history through the miracle of the virgin birth, and then giving his life for our sins. Romans 5 and 8, God commendeth his love to us. Commendeth, a word we don't use much. God proved his love to us, God demonstrated his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You ever thought about what held Christ to the cross? Was it the spikes? No. Was it the cords they probably wrapped around his wrist to keep the spikes from tearing out with the body weight? No. Was it his own weakness that he couldn't move and come down from the cross? No. Was it mental confusion? Did he not know what he was doing? No. You know what held Christ to the cross? Love. His love for me, his love for you, his love for every human being. That infinite God hanging there on that tree loved us with an infinite love unconditional, immeasurable love. So great that it's incalculable by human standards. And he loved us. He could have come down. He could have called 10,000 angels, as the old song says. Why would he love me like that? Was it because I'm so great and I'm so important and I'm so valuable? No, 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 no. He loved me like that. Because it's his nature to to love Just as it's the nature of the sun to shine And to bring warmth and light to the earth So almighty God, his nature is love God is love A love that acts in the best interest of others Not romantic love, not brotherly love But agapeo love Love that thinks about what would be better for you And then follows through On it People standing around the cross All had many different motives Judas sold him for money 30 pieces of silver The Jewish leaders were envious Pilate was afraid of an insurrection But the father's motive was God so loved the world That he gave his only begotten son When I look at the cross I see the love of God I see holy justice I see the seriousness of sin And today the basis Of living for Jesus Christ This week when we leave here The basis of giving And stewardship The basis for service The basis for faithfulness Every motivation that springs from the human heart toward our Lord, the basis of it all is the cross of Jesus Christ. Here's a little picture we've used through the years, particularly when our faith presentations that we've trained people in. And it's a picture of the foot of the cross. You can see there the legs of the Lord on the cross. You see the people gathered around it. Notice them, different races. Because he died for all Different ages, old and young Both sexes, male and female He died for all Notice their expression Some people look at the cross with horror Others with disbelief Some with sorrow One man can't even stand to look Revulsion He can't even gaze upon it It's so horrible Look in their hands, there's hammers and nails that they hold because we, our sins, nailed Him to the cross. And then today, we humble ourselves at the cross. That's the whole point of the picture. We look at the cross and what should be our reaction to humble ourselves and say, you did this because we could not save ourselves. And we confess our sins, our inability to do anything to save ourselves. And we receive him by faith. Our heads are bowed. our eyes are